Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is Yogaland Rewind. Now that we are up to six years of podcasts and more than 5 million downloads, I've decided it might be fun to replay some of our favorite episodes. This week, you're in luck because we have a three-part series on Patanjali that we're going to share with you. So this is the first episode in the three-part series, and it focuses on unpacking Purusha and Prakriti. One of the things Jason points out early in the interview is that he is well-known as an asana teacher, and it's nice for him to be able to share a little bit of his interpretation of yoga philosophy in this series, specifically Patanjali, so that you can get a glimpse into how he incorporates the philosophy into his teaching and how it informs his teaching is, is what I'm trying to say. So this is episode one. We are going to just roll all three of them out this week. So be sure to subscribe or to follow us on Instagram so that you don't miss an episode. And Jason has a whole array of offerings of teacher trainings this year. So definitely check out our website, jasonyoga.com to learn more about them. He's got a 500 hour online training going on right now that you can still register for. He's got a hybrid training happening in London, which is also an advanced training. And he will be leaving for London a month from now to teach the in-person portion of that training. He also has a hybrid 200 hour training, and he is joined by three wonderful teachers, Jasmine Bahia, Adam Hustler, and Adam Hoke. And they will be doing the live portion at Triumph Yoga in London. And Jason is providing the online portion for that training. So a lot going on. Go check out our website, jasonyoga.com to learn all the details and enjoy the interview with Jason. Welcome back, Jason. Thanks for having me again. Nice to have you. As always. Yeah. I mean, as always, it's nice for me. to. I didn't mean to be like, it's always nice for you to have me. Yeah. I mean, it's always nice to be here. I get it. I get it. In our home. (laughs) Looking at each other. Yes. As we usually do. Always. So we are going to talk today about Patanjali. I feel like in part, this is a conversation and an episode that people have been asking me to do for five years since I started the podcast. Way to be withholding. I know. I'm glad to finally deliver this. To well, we're going to do a series on Patanjali. Okay. Yeah. Because Patanjali can only be done in proper context in a series. Okay. Yeah. So this is part one. Part one. And today we are going to talk about Purusha and Prakriti. Yeah. Yes. The easy stuff. I know, exactly. I'm like, so where do we begin? <laughs> well, here's where I want to begin, which is maybe this is my process of unpigeonholing myself from being an asana teacher. Yes. And I think, you know, like I love teaching postures. I like the body. I like how it works. I like technique. I love to grow and learn and iterate and incorporate different modalities and all sorts of things. But to me, at yoga's core is not down dog at yoga's core is the process of self-observation, self-regulation and transcendence. Like those are the key components of this living tradition. And so it's nice to have an environment where we get to talk about some of more of the metaphysical and conceptual layers that underpin Patanjali's worldview. Yeah. 
So the worldview of Patanjali, if you had to classify it, is it, is it Sankhya? The metaphysics of Sankhya form the infrastructure of Patanjali. Okay. okay. Right? So this is, I think, the first thing to remember, which I think most of us know, but hey, we, we're, we're all learning all the time anyways, which is that Patanjali is not really credited as being an original thinker as such. Right. Right? So <laughs> Patanjali's gift is in his compilation and his organization, and the skill with which he borrowed from existing homogenous, not homogenous, heterogeneous communities and cultures and belief systems. But at the core of Patanjali's worldview, his metaphysics, his cosmology, is the Sankhya school. And the Sankhya school really wasn't in Patanjali's era a separate school. So it wasn't in that era like there were hard, clearly defined schools of this and that. But the Sankhya school or the Sankhya methodology or belief system means enumeration, to enumerate, to list, Mm -hmm. right? And so the underlying belief system within Sankhya, like Yana Yoga, Sankhya and Yana Yoga are virtually identical in that the pathway of liberation is through cognitively organizing and listing all of the components of self and the universe. So it's the process of organizing and listing the different layers of who one is. And through that organization, through that listing, achieving liberation. Mm -hmm. So is the listing... Is that the Yoga Sutra? Like the listing that Patanjali did? Patanjali incorporates many of the Sankhya techniques of enumeration. Okay. Right? So we see that in Patanjali, right? Patanjali was an organizer and a list maker, but he talks about the five yamas, the five niyamas, the eight limb path. Right, right, right. The klista and aklista vrittis, the three gunas. And one of the things you'll see in Patanjali often is that there's a category that is introduced. All of the elements of that category are introduced in a sutra. And then the following sutras unpack that original list. Right. Right. So you have the five yamas are introduced and then ensuing sutras enumerate or go into greater detail and list each one of those Yamas that was originally listed. But I think I think more important in terms of understanding Patanjali's belief system and his relationship to the Sankhya school is not so much his process whereby he listed things, but it's the assumptions that he put into the equation, right? Patanjali presents a model. The eight limbs are a model. They're, they're a structure. Mm-hmm. But all models have inputs, Right. So the inputs in Patanjali's model are largely formed from his belief in a dualistic worldview that comes from Sankhya, that all things are comprised of two separate things going by the names of Purusha and Prakriti. Right. Okay. So talk about how um, Patanjali defines Purusha and Prakriti. So this is interesting about Patanjali. 
which is he doesn't define Purusha. He doesn't define Prakriti, not directly. So one of the things to know about Patanjali is the Yoga Sutra attributed to Patanjali assumes existing knowledge. It is not a beginner's text. It's not a householder's text. It was, like everything of the era, written for an unbelievably small and vetted segment of the population. Okay? So this wasn't a particularly inclusive process. Mm -hmm. The sutra, according to Patanjali, is it presumes that the student has an existing knowledge and an existing belief system that is commensurate with Sankhya. So the nature of Purusha and Prakriti are implied. So he doesn't spell them out, right? He doesn't kind of unpack it like you would unpack it for a beginner. Mm -hmm. He doesn't unpack the metaphysics. He The metaphysics are implied. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason that you know, we're all so fortunate to have real historical scholars and right. commentarians mm, right. because looking at Patanjali's sutra out of context and without original commentary, it's it's fairly impenetrable. Right, right, right. So it's kind of like it's kind of like presenter's notes. Like if you found if you were at MIT, right, and you found like a lecturer's notes. Yeah. You, you, I don't know. I wouldn't, I'd be like, what's that? Yeah. I don't know any of this stuff. But if I was that professor, I would know. Or if I was a high level student of that professor, I would know. Right. So the nature of Patanjali's sutra doesn't start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He's not like, okay, on the first day, you will <laughs> learn X, Y, and Z. And here are the inputs into the model. So the worldview of Purusha and Prakriti, although Everything in Patanjali's writing ultimately hinges on the Sankhya dualistic belief system in which we are attempting to disentangle, to disunite Purusha and Prakriti, right? Everything in the sutra hinges on us understanding these inputs. Mm -hmm. He does not specifically speak to these inputs. Right. Okay. So slight tangent. Do you have... Could you rank like your favorite three commentaries in order? Yeah, I could. So Edward Bryant is my favorite commentary. Edwin. Edwin. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that is my favorite about it is because he does a remarkable job of not doing just his original commentary. He commentates on five of the most original and important and influential commentaries. Oh, okay. So he's in so he's <laughs> commenting on the commentary. So he, he's aggregating the commentaries for oh, us. Interesting. And it's so amazing and so beautiful, right? Because it gives us this multi-layered approach. It's also important for me to recognize like I am a westerner. I don't read Sanskrit. I can barely pronounce most words in Sanskrit. And so I'm not an original scholar. Like right. I, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I don't have the ability. I can't read the original text. And so one of the nice things about Edwin Bryant is that because he can, because he's smarter. Yeah. So one of the beautiful things about it to me is it gives me a it gives me an access point to many of the original 
Indian commentaries. Right. And I can't read that content myself. You know, and I and I feel like I feel like that book is not only incredibly erudite, but it's intellectually very honest. Mm-hmm. I think a second one for me is just one of the original ones that I spent time with, which is difficult. It's academically difficult, but it's Garrick Forstein's. Like I've always really appreciated Garrick Forstein's writing, even though at times it's not beach reading. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, and for me as someone that because of how my brain works, like I have a hard time reading for long increments. So I can only really work with either of those texts in about 30 to 40 minute increments before my brain just stops. Mm-hmm. But then my final one, which in some ways to me is the most practical and accessible and from the heart is the commentary in the back of The Heart of Yoga. I knew it. I was yeah. going to say Desica Char. Yeah, Desica Char. Desica Char. I, I mean, talk you. about, like, just talk about a person that can take these unbelievably, almost impenetrable concepts and make them practical. Because Patanjali is also not. It doesn't seem as if Patanjali is writing a text for you to simply ponder. It's not a, he's not giving you an intellectual exercise. He's giving you a pathway of action. Patanjali is very action-oriented, but the action is the action of meditation. It's really a treatise on meditation. So the thing I like about Desikachar is it isn't just this unbelievably astute academic intellectual fodder. It's like, oh, but now what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. You know? So the to me, the most academic, the most intellectually interesting, all the way to the most just useful. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I want to get back to if we want to disentangle Purusha and Prakriti you are going to have to define them at some point. So I don't know where you're, you want to identify this definition, sure. but you, you, that's what we've got to do at this point. Okay. Le- a quick reminder. Patanjali did not invent yoga. Patanjali did not start yoga. Patanjali is not really even close to the roots of yoga. Patanjali is the root of classical yoga. Right. Right? But Patanjali had came after... Upanishads came after the Vedas, right? So he's so much of the worldview that is presented prior to Patanjali in the broader yoga cultures and canon were monistic. Okay. So they were coming from uh, an Advaita world, not two, meaning all of the components of oneself and all of the components of the universe were ultimately the same thing. They were inextricably composed of the same essence. Mm-hmm. This, is not the, this is not the worldview of Patanjali. Mm-hmm. The worldview of Patanjali and the worldview of Sankhya is that everything is comprised of two separate components. Purusha really and Prakriti. Yeah. I think that this is skipped over a lot yeah. by modern yogis and yoga teachers. And I think that people may not know that this 
dualistic viewpoint within the many different streams of yoga is actually the outlier. It's the outlier. Okay. So that's the way Patanjali is an outlier for sure. Which is just really interesting. It's interesting, but let's just, let's, let's face it for a moment, which is when we're talking about monism or when we're dealing with dualism, we're dealing with really subtle metaphysics. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, I don't think that the essence, I don't think that this means that Patanjali was like, oh my God, I wanted everything to be separate. I thought he was this good guy and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. He still believes, hey, at the core of you is soul. Yeah. At the core of you is God. So you are comprised of both components. You are comprised of Purusha and Prakriti. So it's not like you're missing out. Okay. You know what I mean? So, so it's not, I don't think he's presenting us. I don't think, okay, because a lot of times we get into yoga and we're like, oh my God, I'm God. <laughs> no, it's more like everything is one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. That's right. the, right. that right. is what everybody, you know. So, that's, so I think a case can be made that Patanjali believes this. Saying the it's just the, okay. the way that it's being categorized is that, yes, everything is one, but one takes on two different forms. Okay. And those two different forms, are here's where Patanjali is a bit of a downer, okay? Is that he's not, he doesn't celebrate one of the components of self. He does not celebrate your property. So in this, so you can make a case that Patanjali thinks everyone is one in that everyone contains these two components, mm -hmm. right? So he's not really saying that you are just material, and that, that that which is divine is outside of you. Mm -hmm. He's saying you are material and that which is divine is at the core of who you are. It's just sort of covered. It's covered. Right. And so, that, so that's where Patanjali is not really much of a celebrator of certain components of self. So I don't think that he's a big downer in that he's saying you are just a material, material thing in that like – the divine is outside of you and outside of your grasp. Mm -hmm. Where he becomes the downer is the messaging of your Prakriti. So let's get back to yeah. those two components, yeah, Purusha yeah. and Prakriti, mm -hmm. okay? So let's start with Prakriti. Prakriti is all material things and material processes, okay, that exist within the self, and outside of the self. Okay, so all material processes. Now, here's where this gets a little bit complicated because oftentimes in like more of a Western empirical philosophical worldview, the distinct there's a distinction between mind and matter. Mind is the contents or the rumination of your brain or the inner narrator. And then materials are physical artifacts. But in Prakriti, there isn't a distinction between – it's a very different distinction. There is not a distinction between mind and matter because mind is considered matter. So all thoughts, all sensations, all feelings, all emotions, all of your truths, all of your – Deepest wishes and dreams and hopes and fears, those are all Prakriti. 
those are considered to be as material mm -hmm. as the cup in your hand, mm -hmm. as material as the microphone that we're using, as material as the table that we're using. They're not really seen as significantly different. Mm -hmm. So the things that we identify with that make us human, right? Our feelings, our passions, our beliefs, our care for one another, our care for ourselves, our love of art or music or social media, admiration, whatever it is, <laughs> right? Whatever it is, those are all Prakriti mm -hmm. from this worldview. Right. Those are not celebrated things. They're just not. Mm -hmm. You would have to take the vast majority of Patanjali, you'd have to get rid of Patanjali's underlying worldview to think Patanjali was trying to help you just enjoy your life more. You would really have to get rid of like almost everything mm -hmm. to think, oh, Patanjali just wants me to breathe deeper and be happier and be mm -hmm. nicer and enjoy the journey. Definitely not. Mm -hmm. that, that didn't come from Patanjali. So Prakriti, again, everything that is nameable, everything that you can observe within the universe and within the self, Prakriti. Mm -hmm. Purusha becomes the thing that's very difficult to describe. Mm -hmm. Purusha is, we can think about it as that which animates all of those things, that which observes all of those things. You can think of Purusha as, I think the easiest way, I don't know how perfect- Is it like the essence of life force? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's the life force. It, you, that's what I was going to say is you can kind of think about Purusha is, as the soul element mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. The distinction being is that there aren't necessarily separate souls, mm -hmm. right? So I think that a lot of people feel- I, I don't know. I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but you know, if I were to say something about someone's soul, right, I don't think that most people would be like, oh my God, he's a crazy person. I think even people like me that lean a little bit more toward the atheistic side mm -hmm. still have a sense that there is a metaphysical component of self mm -hmm. that is not as transient as our physical body is, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. However we define that. And it gets hard because that's when we're deep into metaphysics, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that most people are comfortable with the idea of soul, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So Purusha would be the infinite, innumerable amount of collective souls. Hmm. What about like, this is going to be, so definitely a tangent, but I'm just thinking like I have heard of Purusha. You know how there's a million different definitions for every Sanskrit word. Sure. Yes. So like one of them. It's Sanskrit, by the sorry, way. There's sorry, no sorry, hard sorry. I'm terrible. Um, we had actually someone used to come to Yoga Journal and try to get us to pronounce things correctly. It's so and we still hard. never did it. We were just I, like, like, I can't even pronounce Spanish right. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, we just, yeah, it was really yeah. hard. So um, nature is one of the de definitions I've read. When you, when you see just like the lists, but what I'm thinking of is like nature, the plants, the, the ground. It's all the, Prakriti. Is it? Okay. Of course. Okay. Everything that can be named or observed or listed is Prakriti. So the, the Also, listeners, don't get mad at me. I'm the messenger here. <laughs> I'm not even telling you I buy into this worldview. No, yeah. Right? But it is the worldview to understand if we want to understand Patanjali. Okay. Because 
Okay, so what you could say is that which animates the life force. It's the living, it's the living component mm-hmm. of self. Mm-hmm. It is, I, I think it's, I don't think that we can say it's the energy. No, it's But I think it's almost, but we're getting closer. Okay. We're getting closer. The nice thing too is we are not the only ones to struggle with putting words to Purusha. One of the ways that Purusha is often referred to is that which cannot be named. Purusha is, Hmm. you cannot be mad at me. (laughs) This is how we talk to our daughter all the time. (laughs) Okay. Listener, you cannot be mad at me. Okay, you cannot be mad. Actually, you can have your feeling. You can have your property. Yeah, you can. Yes, you, you can, can totally have your, have your property. You just can't lash out. That's actually what we say at Sophia. Um, one of the primary interpretations of Prusha is the man, the man that inhabits the city, hmm. and so there is this idea. The man, the yeah, man, that is right? really dated. Right? That's dated. Agreed. Agreed. But we're dealing with something that's very old. Yeah. But if you think about it, right? So let's let's get rid of the man. Let's be like historically incorrect to make sure no one gets mad. But you can kind of think about it. If you think about it as that which inhabits the city, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like, imagine the, the city is, our dog just came, if you just heard um, Andrea Startle, if you want a, a moment of levity. I saw it happening. I didn't know that you didn't see it happening. I saw, I'm on my second cup of coffee. So our, do- just, our dog came in and Andrea didn't know it. put her nose on my and backside. She, and she just sniffed her bottom anyway. and Andrea almost had a heart attack. But think about, okay, so 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 if you want to get, if you want to get rid of the- The gender reference. The gender reference. Mm-hmm. Although that's what it Prusha actually means. But if we want to get rid of that, Think about it as that which inhabits the city. It's the essence of the thing. Hmm. It's okay. the essence of the thing. It's not the material of the thing. So it's not your thoughts. It's not your feelings. It's that which animates thought and feeling. Um, it's the soul element. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Patanjali doesn't talk much. In fact, Patanjali doesn't talk at all about how Prakriti and Purusha have become so intertwined. But it is clear through historical contextualization that the essence of Patanjali's work is to disentangle these two elements of self so that your prakriti is no longer discoloring your purusha. So another way of saying it is all of the things that you think and feel and touch and smell and interact with are considered to be material processes that inhibit your ability to see the true self, Purusha. Mm -hmm. Meaning you only see your internal machinations. You do not see the soulful truth at the center of all those things. Mm -hmm. You see the impressions, you Mm -hmm. see the samskaras. You see your that everything you see and you experience, you do throw you do so through a filter. Mm-hmm. And Patanjali is trying to give us a path to remove those filters so that we see that soulful element that is at the core of ourself clearly. Mm-hmm. That's great. I think that's such a great encapsulation. Can I say one more thing? Mm-hmm. 
it's a lot of times, especially a lot of the original commentators talk about a crystal and a crystal reflects whatever's in front of it, mm -hmm. right? So it is believed that the core of the self, and this is where we're going to have in future podcasts, we have to talk about chitta, mm -hmm. we have to talk about the gunas, we have to talk about the kleshas, because this is all really interesting stuff, right? Look, where does the eight limb path actually occur in Patanjali's work? In the middle. Yeah. In the middle. Pretty far along. Pretty far along, actually. It's not like, here's how I'm no, introducing this. No, Yeah. no. And remember, Patanjali's work doesn't start at the beginning. It presumes that the student is already a scholar of Sunkin metaphysics. It presumes that. So the path that we learn, this Patanjali eight limbs, yama and yama, it's very valuable. Whatever context you learn it in, it's still helpful. But it can be very out of context if we don't really know what that path in Patanjali's interpretation is for. And that pathway that Patanjali is presenting us through the eight limbs is a pathway to disentangle Purusha and Prakriti, to disunite them, mm -hmm. to essentially quell all of the movements of our psyche in order to see the self clearly. So this gets back to that crystal, right? So the belief is that the center core of self is like pure crystal. And that pure crystal can only reflect what is surrounding it. And so if what is surrounding it is moving, if it has a vritti, if it has a wave, if it has humanness, the stuff that we identify as humanness, then we don't actually see that crystal purely. We see the fluctuations. Mm -hmm. I think you just kind of beautifully set us up for understanding why the eight limbs progress the way they do, right? Because it, it really, well, I don't know. In my own personal experience, it isn't until you until I ever experienced kind of deep meditation that I could even begin to glimpse that disentanglement, right? Yeah. It's, it's not until you can literally like calm your body enough, still your senses enough, be able to sit long enough to be with yourself long enough that it then start, starts to kind of blossom and appear. And also that these start to identify less with all the material aspects of yourself. Totally. And others and the world around you. We're going to have a conversation or two where we get into the limbs, but let's do it briefly now. Okay. Right? Let's do it really, really briefly now. And maybe that will be it for this round. Oh, can I just say one more thing? It, I can't stop thinking of the, oh, it's going to bother you so much, the police song, Spirits in the Material World. So I have this thing where I don't like Sting's voice. I know. And I know that this is like, because I'm a fan of like first wave and second that wave genre ska. Of, of music, yeah. Sting, I mean, the police weren't really that, but like theoretically, I should. Yeah, they weren't. At ska. very least, I should theoretically, at very least, appreciate the police. Yeah. You don't appreciate the police at all. I, no, I appreciate the police. I mean, we're talking about the musical band here. Yeah. We're making no commentary. <laughs> We're making no commentary one way or another. Yeah, we're making so no scary. way. And they're like a sting. Oh, my the, gosh. The, the, the police are making a sting. 
We're making no commentary for positive or negative about the police. Oh, God. Okay, we're talking about a musical band mm -hmm. that I theoretically should appreciate. And I guess I do appreciate them, but I just, there's something about Sting's voice. I'm not saying it's a bad voice. I'm saying I don't like, it. It's I don't not a like fit. it. It's just not a fit. But Sting, if you're, if you're, you know, he's one of our big listeners. Oh yeah, I wish. Oh my gosh. I don't. Um, spit. I don't. I don't, I don't, don't wish he didn't. Anyway, can we just get back to spirits in the material world? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very applicable okay. to this discussion. So, what we have to see is we have to see things in their context, right? So it's it's like this, right? If I it's, I, I think about it always, right? I always think of like a sports metaphor, right? If I walked in and I looked at a game and it was a baseball game and it was in the sixth inning and it was three to four, I can't assume that the game started as three to four. I cannot assume that the game ended three to four. Mm -hmm. I can only assume right now in this moment, it's three to four. So it's the same thing when we when we look at the yamas or the niyamas, if you look at them out of context, they can mean a lot of different things. If you look at them in context, they mean fewer things. They're more populated. Now, we'll pause here. Especially when it comes to the yamas and the niyamas. I think that taking a modern interpretation to what yamas and niyamas mean, I think that's totally reasonable in the same way that like, I can appreciate an artist without knowing what the artist's intent was. I can appreciate the lyrics of a song, even if the lyrics of the song don't mean to me what they meant to the author, mm -hmm. right? I can wax on about the yamas or the niyamas, even if they aren't in context. But if we look at the yamas, the niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, samadhi, in context, I think the best way to look at them is concentric circles. Hmm. Remember that Patanjali is looking to decrease the activity of Prakriti. He's looking at decreasing the chitta or the waves or the activity of mind. And when he says oh, mind, psyche, and psyche is embodied. So he's looking to decrease activity from the gross to the subtle so that you no longer perceive the thoughts and the feelings. You only perceive the crystalline center of the self. And in order to do that, he provides a method by which you, like concentric circles, are going from regulating the most gross component of self to the most subtle element right. of self, right? So let's look at it just really quick. Yamas, the observations, right? So yamas, yamas restraints, right? So these really govern or identify the way in which we interact with other people. Mm -hmm. Niyama, the observations the basic internal practices that we endeavor. Mm -hmm. Asana, to sit down and be still. Pranayama, to cut off the flow of breathing. So I know this, like, no one wants to be like, pranayama means to cut off the flow of breathing. 
Pranayama means to restrain the movement of breath. And the majority of the teaching in that world was about making the breath smaller and about reducing its volume. Okay. So you've governed your engagement or you've, you have put a restraint on the way in which you interact with the world. You have engaged in specific practices, yama and niyama, asana, you've sat down to make your physical body still, pranayama, you are making your breath more still, pratyahara, you are disuniting, disuniting your experience of the sensory world, right? You're regulating what your sensory organs take in. Dharana, you're focusing your mind on a single concept or point. Dhyana, you are completely immersed in that point. Samadhi, that point at which all of those previous steps fall away. So you've gone from this place clearly of regulating the gross to the subtle. You're decreasing the activity or you're decreasing the movements of self from the gross to the subtle. You are slowly but surely limiting or reducing your prakriti, your material processes in order to observe undiluted that crystalline centerpiece of self, that purusha or that soul element. You're regulating all of the more like day-to-day human elements to have a direct experience of soul element. It's pretty clear. Yeah. It's pretty clear. And that is an important and actionable, but somewhat small component of Patanjali. Not small component of Patanjali. I shouldn't say that. Everything kind of hinges on the eight limbs and doing those things. But we want to understand those inputs going into it. Yeah. Great. That voice tells me we're done. To be continued. All right. Next conversation. Thanks so much, Jason. You're welcome. All right, everyone. I will put links to those commentaries of the Yoga Sutra that Jason mentioned in the show notes. And you can find the the show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 229. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, enjoy your practice.